0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to week two of the winter semester of Tuesday Bible Study. We are going to dive right in. Uh, But first, I will not forget this week, we are going to open in prayer. The Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may, in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I think I mentioned last week this phrase, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope. That is sort of at the core, this hope is really at the core of uh, Romans 8, which is where we are right now. We're going to be fishing, fishing, whoo, going to be a long day, finishing Romans 8. We're going to be beginning Romans 9 today. There is going to be a shift between the end of Romans 8 and the beginning of Romans 9. Paul is going to move into a new phase of argument. But Romans 8, you're all here on a great day because, well, every day in TBS is a great day. But this one is extra great because Romans 8 is just a beloved and vaunted um, core of Paul's gospel. And we get to look at it together, which will be exciting. There are, in the annex, on the table just to the left of those doors, new syllabi, if you need a new syllabus for this section, and questions for this week and next week. We still do not have small groups this week. Um, We are waiting for some of our leaders to pop back in, but next week the plan is to have small groups as scheduled, so... You will all get to go home early today, or you are free to stay and hang out and discuss the discussion questions at your table. We don't have a food for thought lunch today or cinnamon pound cake, but that's okay. You're still welcome to stay and drink coffee. Last week, we read the first part of Romans 8 which covered a couple key things. The first thing we talked about was this idea that those who have been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection are no longer... Okay, how do I put this in a way that's not... doesn't make it more confusing. The distinction between the Creator... And the created, the creature, still exists. We are not God. We will never be God. But that chasm had been made wider by sin. We were constantly pushing God away. We'd become, um, Paul hints at this, though I'm, actually he says it at one point, we had become enemies of God. And by virtue of being baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that status has changed. We are no longer enemies of God, enemy combatants. We are, in fact, Paul says, and this is quite radical, we are sons and children of God. I say sons on purpose, even though Paul, of course, knows he's also writing to women. He does explicitly at the end of his letter. But in the ancient world, a son is one who is responsible for living out his father's will. If you want to buy a piece of land, do a business deal, accept a job in the ancient world, you can send your son to act on your behalf. And it's the same as having the father there. And Paul also says that we are children of God, sons and children. He uses both words on purpose, and they emphasize different things. So the sons of God means we gain an inheritance. We have a responsibility to live out our Father's will in the world. And yet we are children who cry out, Abba, Father. And Paul says that when we cry out like children, the Spirit of Christ is crying out with us. Do you see how far this distinction, this Animosity between us and God has been collapsed. Where in the as he says earlier, in the grace in which we stand, God's spirit cries out in us. We're no longer like this, we're now like this. We are God's spirit and our spirit, God's will and our will don't have to be in competition. But we can move together toward the kingdom. The phrase son of God is also radical when Paul uses it because Israel throughout the Old Testament is God's firstborn son. The people of Israel that God chose for himself is called sons of God, and this is radical Not because God can choose a people, that's obvious, but because Paul is writing to Gentiles. And so he says something that we have kind of lost how um, amazing this is that Gentiles will also be adopted sons and daughters of God. That's new. No one pre Jesus has thought of that. (laughs) There was always this sense that through Israel the nations would be blessed, but not as sons. They would be blessed, but they wouldn't gain an inheritance, right? The inheritance is the full passing on from father to son. So you can be blessed, but not gain an inheritance. Paul says, Jew or Gentile, that inheritance is yours in Jesus Christ. The other thing he talked about is this. As we cry, Abba, Father, the creation itself, the whole cosmos all that is seen and unseen, everything created is also under this curse of sin and is crying out, Paul says, in labor pains, waiting for something more. So in a sense, this world which God made and called good, what we see And we know this about people we know this instinctively what we see isn't what god intended god doesn't want us to kill each other and it would seem paul suggests he doesn't want his creation to kill us either the whole cosmos and paul of course remember we're thinking cosmically i thought of this in the car on the way here and this will help when we get further down in romans 8. if you're reading something in the bible And it seems really confusing or hard or wrong, and you will come across those things. If you don't, read a little more. (laughs) Think cosmically. What is the biggest picture I can come up with? So Paul is thinking cosmically. So he is thinking about the earth and trees and plants and rocks and hurricanes and snakes and lions and lambs and people. And he's thinking about angels and demons and powers and fallen angels and exalted angels and archangels. He's thinking about all sorts of things that, for Paul, are much more live than they are for us. They're still there, I believe. We just have lost touch with that. And all of that is groaning under the curse of sin, waiting for something more. What is it we're waiting for? Great question. What we're waiting for is the hope promised to us in Jesus Christ. The hope that someday the work that has already been done in Jesus Christ, nothing more needs to happen. You don't get bigger than the incarnation. (laughs) There's no second act that is somehow better than God becoming man. And defeating death. That's as big as it gets. And yet there's a sense that the struggle is still ongoing. That while the allies have landed, there is still fighting that will continue until the war is over. And so that is what we're looking to in hope. And so Paul is right. Because remember, he's writing to a community that is suffering and persecuted and at risk, and what he's saying is, don't think that your present suffering will have anything to do with your status before God. We'll talk more about that today, because he's really going to go into this today, and so we are hoping for a future glory when the closeness we have with God now is only a shadow of the closeness we will have. The fellowship we have with each other now is only a shadow of the fellowship we will have, where the lion and the lamb will lie down together and no one will make them afraid. And so we can't see it, but we hope for it. And this key, this is something I meant to talk about last week and got distracted, Paul uses it's subtle but it's good faith and hope are very closely connected to Paul for Paul we sometimes talk about faith as either gosh this is something as a pastor you see all the time people think faith is either an emotional feeling like something in their heart i feel faithful or it's an intellectual assent to a series of propositions. Like, do I believe every word of the creed? If yes, I have faith. Or does my heart feel on fire for God? If yes, I have faith. And for Paul, Paul is pre-modern, so he doesn't really have that, those two distinct things that we think of as faith. For Paul, faith is trust. Trust in God. And here's how we know all of Romans 4 about Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. And remember in Romans 4, Paul doesn't spend any time talking about how Abraham feels. Paul doesn't care how Abraham feels. He doesn't care if Abraham intellectually gets what God is doing. He cares that when God tells Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations, Abraham believes him. He trusts that God will do that. And this helps us see how faith and hope, hope is just another kind of trust. It's trust that what God has said will happen Even if I can't see how. Even if the world we have looks really different than the world God has promised us, because I trust the one who promised, I can trust the promised. Faith and hope are very closely connected, two sides of the same coin. Whew! All right. We are going to begin in Romans 8. And we touched on verse 28 last week, but we're actually going to begin there again and go through it a little more closely. As always, we're going to go pretty much verse by verse. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his promise. Already we're stopping. There, this sentence in Greek, this is why we have to go back here, because I actually went and translated this sentence, and it's very confusing. This sentence in Greek has a lot of possible interpretations. One of the things that's fun about biblical Greek is that word order doesn't matter. It's all about how, which endings of the words are used when. So it can be kind of hard sometimes to tell what the subject of a sentence is because word order doesn't matter. You can say like, Charlotte car store. Well, did Charlotte go to the car store? Did the car come to Charlotte? You know, like it it doesn't matter where the word order is. So it can be kind of confusing. So this sentence... This is going to be hard to read, but don't worry, I'll read it for you. Has many different translations in your different Bibles. The New Revised Standard Version, which we use in the lex- in church, says, we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So the subject of that sentence is all things. The Revised Standard Version, which is what I'm reading from, says we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So the subject of the sentence is God. The Authorized Version, the King James Version, says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. The English Standard Version, the most popular Bible in America, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And the New International Version, which is a dynamic equivalence translation, says, And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who is the subject of this sentence? It's not clear. There is a long tradition in translation um, of God being the subject of the sentence. That's shown in sort of the RSV and the NIV. Yeah, the RSV and the NIV. We know that in everything God works. There are also other ancient sources, other um, later manuscripts of Romans. Because, you know, in in assembling the Bible, you don't just have the one piece of paper. Like, this is the authentic letter to the Romans. There's a bunch of different manuscripts, all with slightly different changes. So other ancient sources have this sentence reading, God makes all things work together for good. Or, In all things, God works for good. So there's a long tradition of this. Many scholars think that this is likely an early attempt to make this passage less confusing. (laughs) So early on, people were like, Paul, I don't know what you're trying to say. (laughs) Let's just tidy this up a little bit. But it's a good reading. It's one reading. Then the smoothest Greek translation is to make all things the subject of the sentence. Like the New Revised Standard Version, and actually the New Revised Standard Version went back to the King James Version, which is interesting. We know that all things work together for good. So the only kind of, this, the Greek reads really smoothly when you do that. That's, I'd say, is the closest to a literal translation. The reason it gives people a hang-up is it introduces a new thought. Because we have, starting at verse 26, the Spirit groaning for us, interceding for us. And then this, what seems to be a new thought. And we know that all things work together for good. This causes some people a lot of heartburn. I think it's okay because you're a... You're allowed to use a sentence to transition to another thought. You don't have to just have one thing the whole time. I think that's what's going on here. Barbara Opinion. There are some people who say that the subject of that sentence really should be the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for us. And we know that in everything, God's Spirit is working together for good. As always, I think they're probably all a little bit true. Okay, that was a lot of grammar on a Tuesday morning after a holiday weekend. But the point is, and we mentioned this last time, here's how I think about it. If God is the subject of the sentence, God works through all things for good. And if all things is the subject of the sentence, all things work together for good. They only do that through God, so it doesn't matter. Because we know, because we've read the first five chapters of Romans, that not all things are good. What we want to be careful about doing here is reading this to say well, there's probably a reason you got cancer because all things work together for good, right? That is bad pastoral care and bad theology. (laughs) If your friend gets cancer, don't say, well, I've read Romans and all things work together for good, so this will probably be the best thing that ever happened to you. What this sentence is saying is that even cancer cannot thwart God's will For those who love God. So it's not God's will that we get sick. But it is God's will that that sickness doesn't define us. That we can still be who we are. Can still hope for glory in spite of the bad things that happen to us. We know that in everything God works for good... With those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So, second half of that sentence. Those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Another thing we want to be clear on is, just like faith is is not an emotion, for Paul, loving God isn't a feeling. If you're married... You already know this. <laughs> that loving someone is not always an emotion. And in the biblical literature, to love God has nothing to do with personal feelings, with the, the kind of um, emotional thrusting of the heart, <laughs> but with trust and obedience of God. I promise I'm building up to something here. So, in biblical literature, those who love God are the members of God's household, God's people. How do you know Israel is God's people? They're the ones God loves, and they are the ones who love God. If you like homework, you can look at Deuteronomy 7.9, Psalm 145, verse 20, and in your Apocrypha, you can look at Tobit thirteen twelve, and the wisdom of Sirach 1.10. You will see some examples here of the love of God referring to those who are in God's household. What does this sound like? It sounds a lot like being a child of God, a child and son. We're in this. Paul is building this cosmic vision of God's family. And so the key here in both of these is that it's not about the individual, only about the individual. It's a cosmic argument that all things work together through God's will, through God's providence for the ultimate good. So this isn't a conversation about, will I have a good life or a hard life? It's about an ultimate hope, a cosmic hope that encompasses the whole creation. And thanks be to God, we have a part to play in that. All right, that was just verse 28. (laughs) Verse 29. So we just heard that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his promise. Nope, that's wrong. Who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be that he might be the first among many brethren. You see now why we had to slightly amend the syllabus because I couldn't handle this section about predestination right at the end (laughs) of last week's. But it's okay. It's not as bad as we think. So, my translation says, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined. This word for new is prognos... Oh man, I always do this. Prognosco, the same root as the word prognosis. And predestined is prurizo. What do these words mean? Prognostico literally means to know beforehand. Gnosis is knowledge. Pro is the, you know, goes before, like promote. So God has knowledge of something before. He foreknew it. In the biblical literature, again, there is this connection between God's foreknowledge and God's election. So remember, God exists outside of time. So God is never trying to predict what's going to happen. Because for God, there is no going to happen. It's all now. Every moment for God is an unbounded now. If you think about it too much and try to figure it out, it'll make your head hurt and so for god to foreknow to to know beforehand that israel would be his people is the same as to choose israel do you see what i mean do you see how god's god's foreknowledge is the same as his foreaction because it all happens here and now there isn't like god's never in a competition of Will I get them or will somebody else? Will I get there first or will you? Because it's all now for God. And so this word, prurizo, literally means predestined, to be determined beforehand. This word has a lot of baggage because we're Protestants which is good. High five Protestantism. But what this verse isn't about is the doctrine of predestination. Paul is not talking about heaven and hell. Paul hasn't mentioned heaven and hell once in the entire book of Romans. He hasn't been. Remember, for Paul... Again, we have to think cosmically. The question has never been, what happens to me when I die? The question is, what is the status of this cosmos before its creator? So for Paul, the eschatological hope, the thing you're looking for, is not when you die your soul leaves your body and goes to heaven but for that ultimate judgment of god this is throwing it back to something we talked about last semester for paul and for all of israel the hope has been that god will judge the nations and this theology has developed that at the time paul is writing that this judgment would fall on the gentiles and that Israel would be restored to right relationship with God. Remember, early on, Paul questions that. He says, don't think that just because you're circumcised, you will get out of this judgment. And then he does all this work in Romans, I can't remember what chapter, two, three, maybe, to show that all have sinned. The judgment has fallen on everyone, but thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has interceded for us. So, when Paul is talking about predestination, he isn't talking about individuals going to heaven or hell. He's talking about the election of God's people. Now, election and predestination, God choosing an indiv- a group of people, I won't say an individual, but although that happens too, God choosing a group. And elect is all over the Bible. You can't get away from it. But it's almost never about heaven and hell. God choosing Israel is election. Israel is God's elect. They are predestined because God chose them for something. It's the promise to Abraham. Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky, and through you I will bless the nations. Israel is chosen, is elected, is predestined to show people, show the rest of the nations what it looks like to live in right relationship with God. They struggle because of the curse of sin, but through them the promise comes that they will bless the nations. That's what Paul means by predestined that you are destined for something you're chosen for something and so now he's saying because remember that franchise has opened up we are grafted into the family of God we are sons and daughters and children of God which means we also are destined for something You've heard me say this in sermons, you'll hear it again. The question isn't so much, what are we saved from, but what are we saved for? What are we predestined for? See, when you actually look at the text, this sort of, it's debatable if John Calvin believed this, his later followers definitely did, that some people are elect to heaven and some people are elect are rejected and sent to hell. That's actually much more boring than what's going on in Romans. (laughs) What's going on in Romans is a question about the destiny of humankind, of all those who are conformed to Jesus Christ. Heaven and hell, it's like, yeah, whatever. Moving on, I'm talking about the cosmos. (laughs) I'm talking about something way bigger than that. Again, Paul is not a Protestant theologian. Okay, I got excited and got lost. Oh, good question. Okay, I, I just wrote in my notes, what are we predestined for? Great question, past Barbara. It's right here in verse 29. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What we are predestined for is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What are you saved for? You're saved to be like Jesus. And notice the way the grammar works here. Again, it's not to try really hard to be a better person. But that God, working his grace in your life, will conform you to the image of his son. This isn't quite as simple as what would Jesus do. Also, if you actually read the gospels, a tricky question to answer. Like, I don't know, turn over the money changers' tables? Perform a miracle? How does that help me decide, you know, how much money to put into savings? Um but that the action of God, the grace of God, will conform us to the image of his Son. Now, this word image is doing a lot of work here. Oh, this is so cool. We are made, we hear in Genesis, in the image of God. And Paul has told us earlier that sin strips us of the glory we are meant to show. But by being conformed to christ buried and raised and paul is going to say undergoing suffering like christ we can begin to show forth the image in which we were made sin makes us less than fully human because the human is meant to show the glory and image of God. Christ shows it perfectly. And by being buried and raised with Christ, we can hope to be conformed to him. So this is where I said, this was at the very end of last semester, in Christ, righteousness begins to be possible. Under our own power... We cannot opt out of sin. It is only in Christ, in the power of resurrection working through us, that we can begin to hope to live differently. So, as I said before, there are no small kindnesses if you are in Christ. If you are generous or kind when you have the option not to be, that is resurrection working through you. That is the power of Christ working through you. If you are courageous in the face of suffering, that is the power of Christ working through you. There are no small things for one who has been buried and raised with Christ. But you are beginning to show forth God's glory. You are beginning to become a human being designed for what we were designed to be. In the Eastern Church, they call this theosis the idea that the human creature is becoming more like God. Now to be clear, they never mean like becoming God or becoming like an angel. We always stay human, but that we aren't rooted we aren't rooted in sarks, flesh anymore. Because we are rooted in soma, body, a body taken on by Christ. We are freed from the curse and thus can begin to live differently. And this also matches with the work Paul does around Christ being the last Adam. Remember when he talked in... Oh, I don't have pericope notes in this Bible. In chapter whatever it was about Christ as the last Adam, that through Adam came death, so through Christ comes resurrection from the dead. Christ is the picture of a human being fully alive. A human being without the curse of sin. And it is our hope that we can be conformed to that image. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we talked about how predestined and call are really synonyms. To be elect, to be chosen by God for something. God is calling you to do something, not just to exist. And then he brings us back to this word justify, which we talked about a lot last semester. But we'll review here. Remember, this all gets back justify. It's the same root as righteousness and justice. And Paul is always operating in this eschatological courtroom. This hope of Israel that God would judge the nations. That in the last day, there will be a judgment. And God will pronounce condemnation on sin and will exalt the righteous. And so... To be justified doesn't just mean, because the root is righteousness, it's the same word, it doesn't just mean to be found not guilty. He doesn't say we will be acquitted, but that we will be made right before God. That all of the cosmos, when it's justified to God, is made right And I think I told you, I know I told you last semester, the word I like here is rectified. We will be made right. We will be rectified before God. The right-making power of God is God's righteousness, is God's justification. So there will be, there is hope, not that we get off the hook But that we are made, again, we are conformed to the image of Christ. We are made what we were truly made to be. And I think if we think, gosh, I know I've had people in my life who were cruel and selfish and lived brutal, short lives the hope for that person isn't that they get off the hook, but that they get a chance in God's grace to be what God called them to be, what God made him to be. That somehow, in God's grace, he can be made right, not just acquitted for his earthly Because, you know, we've all known these people who have these struggles and at some level never got a chance. Either through accidents of mental health or being born into the wrong family or abuse or addiction. All of these are signs of the power of sin. And the hope for those people isn't that they get let off the hook, but that they get to be made right. The rectifying, right making, justifying power of God. And the hope, because to be clear, those are extreme examples. We all need this. <laughs> all have fallen sin, have all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we all need to be healed, to be made right. We can hope for it now. We can begin to do it now. Well, that's not true. God will begin to do it in us now, but we won't see it fully until the last days. And this is what Paul promises in verse 30. Those whom he justified, he will glorify. So again, this super abundant grace of God that's all over Romans, it's not just that God will heal you kind of back to neutral, but that we will then be glorified, exalted, more than we could ever have hoped to be, because God is always pouring out more than we could ask or imagine. So in Christ, God is completely making the cosmos new. Because remember, this hope that we will be rectified justified is the hope of the cosmos we're longing for the same thing this is this is big this is big news 31 through 39 what shall we say to this to the news that god is going to restore all things <laughs> Gee, I don't know. Like, that's, what shall we say to this? Good question. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also give us all things with him? So if God is for us, again, this is a sort of, if we bring this down, if we lose the cosmic level, this sentence can be a problem because throughout the Christian century, every army has thought God was on their side. (laughs) It can be a mistake if you think, well, God is for me, ergo, everyone who's against me is against God. Again, this is bad theology. (laughs) The question isn't, it's like the cancer question. Paul is speaking rhetorically, it's not if God is for us, well, then everyone else is against us, but if God is for us, by which he means those who are in Christ, those who are God's people in God's household, and the whole cosmos, who can be against us, who can prevail against us? in the long term? Who will hope to defeat the God that is making all things new in Jesus Christ? And how do we know God is for us? How do we know that God wants us healed, rectified, and glorified, that he wants to see the human being fully alive, in right relationship with its creator. How do we know that? Because he did not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all. If God, that's a high, this is one of the places where Paul just demonstrates this love of God for his people so clearly. If God did not want to save us, he would not have paid the price of dying for us. If he was willing to give us Jesus, he must really want us to be healed and be in relationship with him. Will he not also give us all things with him? I think this is another example of that super abundant grace. It's not just that, you know, this is kind of the pop culture line. Jesus died to save your soul from hell. Okay, we can talk about that probably, but to give you more than that. Again, it's not an acquittal. This is why that kind of I think, coarse theology that says Jesus paid the price for your sins. Like, you would have had to suffer like that. Except Jesus came and interceded for you and so God punished him instead of you. I don't think that's what... Okay, there is... That's not totally wrong, but it's mostly wrong. It's not Trinitarian. God is not punishing Jesus. God is Jesus. But more importantly... Okay, this isn't a class on atonement theology, so I'm trying not to get distracted by my own thoughts. More importantly, Jesus doesn't come to save you just from something, but to save us for something. The hope is not that we get acquitted, but that we get to become who God wants us to be, who God made us to be, which is conformed to the image of Christ. So, will he not also give you all things? You've already been saved from sin. The hope is looking for what that means. What does it look like to be a creature who is no longer living under the dominion of sin, but under the reign of God? So, if God was willing to give us his Son, will he not also give us all things? So then, you see, in verse 33, we're right back in this courtroom. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen? It is God who justifies, who makes things right. Once things are made right, there is no charge anymore. Because we've been restored, renewed. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. So Christ is both the judge and our lawyer. He is advocating for us, interceding for us. And so when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus the one he loved from before the beginning of all time. So the curse, the condemnation, as Paul said earlier in verse 8, has fallen on the sin, not on the creature who was trapped in it. Now, there may still be... Sometimes getting healthy is painful. So there may still be struggles as we seek to be made right before God. It's not a painless process, but that pain isn't a sign of God's condemnation because that condemnation has fallen on sin. So Christ is both judge and advocate and the one who already accepted the sentence. (laughs) And so with a God like that, who can thwart God's determination to make things right? Paul asked that question. Who shall separate us? This is verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Remember, for Paul's early church, this group of Christians, new Christians, um, these are live threats. These earthly threats are things that will probably happen to them, have already happened to people they know. And remember, in the ancient world, there was sort of this, in the pagan world, I'll say, this isn't really in Judaism quite as much, um, there's this idea that if you live your life right, you are in right relationship with the gods, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you will face famine and persecutions and nakedness and sword, right? This is a very common assumption, and you know how we know it's what the book of Job is about. And here, Paul is saying, don't think that your present persecutions are a sign that you do not have God's favor, because he's already done all of this in Jesus Christ. They cannot separate you from the love of God. The worst anyone can do to you is kill you. And what is that if you have resurrection? If you've, been, you've already died and been raised with Christ. So the worst they can do is kill you, and that's nothing to one who is in Christ. Verse 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors, I love that phrase, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first chunk we had were earthly, material risks that the people of God are facing. The second chunk are all those heavenly powers, all those things that seek to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. We are more than conquerors of those things. You do not need to be afraid. i us? talked about that. Two lists trust more than conquers. So again, here, this is an important note. The love of Christ, which we cannot be separated from. I've harped on this already, but I'll say it again. That is not a feeling. It is not the feeling of loving Christ. And it certainly isn't God's feelings toward you. (laughs) What it is, is the concrete instance of Christ's death and resurrection for us. It's sort of, you know, like I said, when you're married, love is not always a feeling, It is the action of loving another person. The action of God sending his son to die and rise for us is the love of Christ. So it actually doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us feeling in love with Christ, though we should, and it's awesome. And when we do, it's great. But if nothing can separate us from that love... Then, even when our souls feel dry or we have doubts, even that can't separate us from the love of God. Because the love flows from the Father through the Son to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we will continue to struggle, but we don't have to worry about the outcome. There will be trials, there will be challenges, there will be fires and, per- he doesn't think he says fires, famines and persecutions and sword and nakedness. But you don't have to worry about the outcome. That is sure. Okay, I have three minutes. <laughs> Although we don't have a small group, so I could go over it, but I'm not going to i have integrity all right so what i'm going to do now we have just summed up if you want to know the gospel of paul (laughs) the gospel of our lord jesus christ according to saint paul read these verses in romans 8 this is it that nothing can conquer god's will for his people this is so so important hold on to this nothing can thwart god's will for his people Nothing can thwart God's will for his people. Why is this important? Because Paul is about to move into a long discourse on the status of Israel. This whole time, Paul has been talking to Gentiles. Gentiles who have aligned themselves with the God of Israel, who are now adopted into the family of Israel. But what about Paul's brethren who do not accept Christ as their Messiah. So here's sort of the shape of Romans Romans 1 through 8 is all about the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's family. And thus some say the rejection of the law, the rejection of Israel. I put that in square quotes on purpose. Romans 9 through 11 is all about the inclusion of Israel. What is happening with Israel? And Romans 12 through 15 is Paul's exhortation to his people to live as though those first two things were true, to live as though God is the God of Gentiles and of Israel. And this is something that Paul struggles with. So remember Paul's context. It seems likely, we know for a historical fact, That the Jewish community and the Christian community in Rome, early on, were the same community. That Christianity in Rome came out of the synagogue. That at some point, there was this break. But it seems likely that Paul, and we know he has to do this elsewhere from things he says, Paul is having to defend himself against the charge that he has strayed too far from Christianity's Jewish roots. So Paul has, up until now, his gospel has been radically inclusive. And I don't mean in like a coexist bumper sticker kind of way. I mean like God's reach and the reach of sin. He has set up that all humans have been bound by sin. Don't think you're free from sin just because you're circumcised or just because you worship the God of Israel or just because you have the law. And he has set up that all people who are in Christ have the privilege of being in God's elect, in God's community. So this is going to raise a question. Is God going against his original purpose, that through Israel God would bless the nations? Has God included the Gentiles at the expense of Israel? Has there been a shift? Israel was the people of God, now Jesus is here, and now the church is the people of God. That's a question that's raised. And if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, why are there still Israelites who do not accept him as that Messiah? These are things Paul is going to wrestle with. And his conclusion is going to be interesting. And I also think, gosh, especially, you know, the weekend after a terrorist attack at a synagogue, these are live questions for Christians. We need to get our relationship with Israel on good scriptural grounding because the church has not always been a friend of God's people. And I actually think if we look to Paul and we look at what he's really saying, we are going to see that God's love for his people, Jew and Gentile, is deeper and broader than we could have imagined. That when we get into trouble, it's thinking about those questions too narrowly. But we do not have time. To do it today. Okay, so on your syllabus, if you want to note, we are going to begin at chapter 9 next week. We're going to begin in chapter 9. Luckily, it's only five verses. Frankly, that was a little weird in the syllabus anyway, so it's fine. We're going to do 9, 1 through 18 next time. But that's fine. We can do that. No problem. 9, 1 through 18 next time. Thank you all. Have a great day.